0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. I'm your host, Michelle Barard, founder and CEO of Michelle A. Berard LLC and Urban Book Editor. And I'm very happy to share this hour with you where we examine all those places where spirit meets life and the joys and challenges that may bring. You guys know I like to start by thanking Ms. Beverly Black and Tribe Family Channel for helping me create this space for us. Tribe Family Channel is home to an assortment of thought-provoking shows that explore life, spirit, business, and culture, including The Woman at the Well, hosted by Ms. Beverly Black herself. Somewhere in the Middle was born on Tribe Family Channel, and though we've grown onto our own platform, we are ever grateful and loyal to our roots. To paraphrase an African proverb, we are here only because we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. I want to say thank you to my guests on the March 27th show, author and community activist, Dewandis Johnson. You can connect with Dewandis on social media and at his website. If you missed that show, make sure you listen to the replay. You can find our complete show archives, including the March 27th show at the the Podcast.com. I also wanna shout out Bruce George of the Geniuses Common Movement, which encourages all of us to embrace our inner genius and share it with the world. It is so very important that we share this message with the youth. But it's not just for the youth, guys. Sometimes we adults need to be reminded that the world needs our genius. Learn more about the Genius is Common movement at www.geniusiscommon.com. Now, guys, this interview actually ran a little long, and it's because there's so much to unpack here. But I think you're really going to enjoy this guest. Kaylin Kay originally is from Brooklyn, New York, where she raised her two adult children and worked in politics and the arts. In the 90s, Kaelin moved to Northampton, Massachusetts. She attended Holyoke Community College, the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and matriculated in the opera department at Smith. Kaylin developed the Talking About Race self-study curriculum, which is designed for white people who want to foster equality in their lives, drawing upon Kaylin's classroom experiences teaching a course for college students entitled, Let's Talk About Race. Kaylin has also worked in politics, organizing marches on Washington for peace and justice and for the US withdrawal from Central America. And she's also worked as a health benefits field representative for local 205 DC 1707 welfare fund in New York City. Deeply invested in social services and education since 1991, Kaylin also has been a member of the Anti-Racism Committee in the National Organization for Women and was their national keynote plenary speaker on white privilege for their 50th anniversary celebration in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Kaylin does public speaking and consults with teachers and activists who are using her book, Talking About Race, a workbook about white people fostering racial equality in their lives. In addition, Kaelin has appeared in several documentaries and has designed study guides to accompany the book. So I'd like to welcome Kaelin to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. Kaelin, thank you for being on the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Well, I don't know if you have heard. I'm really excited to have you because you uh, have an interesting background and the work that you do is really, I think, very important, especially nowadays and I like to ask two questions and the reason I ask these questions is because I believe they really kind of encapsulate you know what you're doing you know they kind of really help people understand what it is that you're doing so if you're ready I'll ask my two questions I am ready Kaelin who are you and how did you become who you are today
1: okay who am I Let's see. I am somebody who is extremely serious about the concerns around racial injustice in this country. Um, I am a woman. I am a white woman. And I'm 68 and I'm very happy about that. (laughs) I'm not at all self-conscious about my age. It's a wonderful thing to have lived this long and it's a fascinating experience to see the trends and the changes that people undergo in a lifetime, because I've been really fortunate. I've lived a really full life and a long time, and that's who I am. And my perspective, uh, I've always sort of done things from a real honest, truthful, authentic place within me all my life. I had had the good fortune of meeting someone when I was 18 who I fell in love with. We married, we had two children, we were very blessed. That person happened to have been black or African-American. He was a Vietnam veteran, George Williams. And I was fortunate. And I do consider this part of the whole identity aspect of myself all of my life is his influence because we were happy at the time. Of course, we were interracial. It was 1969. And some of the responses to our union were totally outrageous completely outrageous and life-threatening so I think that in many respects I had that kind of uh, fundamental duality going on where we have this interior happiness and satisfaction with one another in the relationship we're having our children you know kind of in a state of bliss frankly we both love being parents and yet we had this exterior experience of the world being so adverse to it or repelled by us or either embracing us because they think that we're hip and all these assumptions about us. And it was kind of strange because I was kind of a private person, but somehow or other, some kind of a public persona went with the package. Mm. So it's taken me many, many years, many decades to keep figuring out that the depth of that, the depth of that fact, that, and that many things that we were experiencing things that traditionally what families of color experience. And one would have to be self-consciousness. The other would be overexposure. The other one is, has to be to re-reviewing one's motives at, at certain transitions in your life that for other white-on-white couples, let's say, are quite uh, ones that they don't have to be quite so self-conscious about. So mm-hmm. basically I was learning and learning and learning and assimilating a great deal about prejudice and trying to put it together and figure out um, how I was going to be Not not even so much coping with it with my family necessarily, but coping with it within myself because I here I am that white person. Mm -hmm. I am part of the supremacy. I am part of that white privilege. And so how do I reconcile that and can I? And then I began to try to formulate that and put that into words to be a catalyst for change for other white people who wanted to come into consciousness about certain things, make certain adjustments in their lives who may not necessarily have a primary relationship to someone of color. Mm. Because my point of view in my book, talking about race, a book about white people fostering racial equality in their lives, my point was, not everyone's gonna have that
0: experience. You know, we don't Experience only... of, of having of, a primary of, relationship of, with someone yeah, of color. a
1: primary relationship that's interracial, you know, not, not mm-hmm. everybody's gonna have that. A uh, very powerful positive experience do you know what i mean necessarily mm-hmm. in their associates or work relationships or intimate relationships necessarily so in a way i just i began to try to figure out well how can i get this kind of across to other people who may not have that and it's not that we don't have access to exposure it's just that exposure does not equal psychic integration exposure to right. integration does not does not unfortunately mean we're okay. it doesn't mean we're willing to give up white privilege. It doesn't mean we're willing to go up dominance. It doesn't mean we're okay. It doesn't mean that um we're we're interested right right, but might go into transforming the meaning of whiteness and getting out of out of this mechanism that's so domineering and dominant in so many ways and so taxing on people of color. And and also villainous and violent and vile. So that's kind of expresses to you somewhat some of who I am. I'm a person who for whom this work kind of revolves around around me all the time. This is what I care about. This is what I decided to really focus my attention on.
0: Well, you've said so many things that I think are just fascinating. And I'm gonna I I take notes as, as you were speaking, I took notes. So I have some things I want to ask you about specifically. Sure. So you mentioned that you, at 18 you met this African-American man, Vietnam vet, you married, you had two kids and you were very happy together internally. Like your, your home life was very happy, but, you have this exterior experience yeah. in the world. And there were two things you mentioned in particular, where it's, it's they seem like polar opposites, but I don't I suspect in a way they're not really they're deeply related. One was yeah. the folks who just met you with outrage or hatred or anger. And then there's the other side where you were embraced as being hip and cool and and so right. forth. Right, right. Tell us I mean, I perceive that, yeah, my first husband was white, and mm-hmm. I remember we were the cool couple. We were, you know, people wanted to hang out with us. You know, yeah. this was a little while later. This was the 90s, but um, yeah, I feel like those two things are actually related, even though they seem opposite of one another. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that?
1: I think you're right in the sense of people have all kinds of motivations for being drawn to one another, number one, and socially. And some of the assumptions are, I, I think it depends on how much a person is really conscious of why they are attracted to you, what they think you're really gonna be like. There were a lot of assumptions about me in those situations. Um, one would be that I wouldn't be angry about racism. Hmm. I could be nice and really hip. But if I was agitated about racism and expressed in a predominantly white environment, that was not okay. That wasn't nice. <laughs> that wasn't nice. So then, mm-hmm. and then it ruined the whole social vibe, you know, cause we're all right.
2: hip,
1: having a good time. We're all hip. So it just, well, all it did was encourage me to think about language more like, but well, what does hip really mean? Does it mean that you draw these stereotypical assumptions of me because I'm with George, then I could go to another environment and in that environment. They're all like, Oh, you're a total sucker. You really fell for this. You fell for this guy. You know, I can go into another neighborhood and and certain people would think that I'd want to be with them because I've been with him. Oh. Um, in a whiter neighborhood, a white guy would be like, oh, so you're choosing, oh, you don't know what it's like to be with a white man yet. So I noticed there were a lot of sexual stuff and it didn't come from me. I mean, I wasn't really, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking uh-huh. about a lot of the assumption, even gender wise even sexual-wise, that, to me, white men seem very competitive, like, oh, you haven't been with a white guy then. (laughs) So let's say I had, like, (laughs) it's hysterical. It's hysterical. Let's say I had, like, a. so it was very hard, but but you know what was difficult about it was, who was I going to talk to when I had a problem?
0: Hmm. Right? Right. I think this is fascinating because it sounds like there's a... There was an appropriation of your sexuality on a certain level. Yes, is what I'm hearing. hmm
1: hmm Yes. <laughs> yep. And 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 on a collective level, white men felt rejected, very dejected. How could you reject a white man for a black man? That's a big no-no. That's a big no. In <laughs> in racism circles, that's that's bad. You don't do that. Um, and certain white men let me know that. So it also kind of put me in a certain position of danger.
0: Well, that was what I was going to ask about next, because you mentioned that some of these uh, situations were actually very, um, angry and in some cases almost life, life threatening. Well, sure.
1: And also with even just language, because some of the people who, even George, we, we grew up in the same, not in the same crowd, but a similar neighborhood mm-hmm. in the same neighborhood so his friends would when he wasn't around they would refer to him as a nigger and say oh you're a nigger lover wow wow
2: wow
1: mm. the people you know he'd be hanging out that he trusted so it's kind of interesting for me because i'm looking at a black male who's sort of in the minority with a bunch of white guys but not only white guys a few black guys and how different the take on, the white take on George was entirely different than the black guy's take on George.
2: In what really way?
1: Um, black men were more like nonchalant about George being with me. I think at, at that point, this is like, we're talking about 1970. At that point, mm-hmm. I thought when I, when I began to really take in racism for what it really is, the incredible, to me, it's a total act of murder, conscious, blatant murder. So, because there are many ways to destroy a person and destroy right. a family. So and the whole calculation is to do that is to destroy. But number one, what I remember when um George's family, for example, when we got together, they were completely like almost amused by it. And I after a while I thought, you know, it's so interesting. I guess it's because once you really experience racism for what it is, nothing's gonna take you by surprise anymore. <laughs> <laughs> white woman walks through the door with your with your brother. You know, I was like, okay, man, you know what's up? You know what I mean? It's time for a joke. It's time for a joke. Um and that was very interesting to me, whereas in my white environment I was locked in a room and my life was threatened by my father when he knew I was seeing George.
2: Wow. So I was
1: locked in a room and, and um he no he's an extreme case, however So he's not the so-called normal. However, these days, I'm not quite sure that's true because I do consider racism a sociopathological problem. And a lot of psychopaths are racist. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, he had done that. And um, um, so and then he threatened to kill me with a hammer to hammer my head in. So he went to my neighbors and said, if any of them help me when I leave home, he's going to hammer their head in. So I. Yeah, this is very serious stuff, you know. So it was interesting to try and George seemed kind of blasé about like not quite hip to it, but he just came back from Vietnam. So that's another very fascinating aspect of generationally when you're involved in interracial relations, how much the norms of that generation impact you in terms of an enlightening sense of what's going on, or also in terms of so much trauma taking place anyway, that you're going to be even more desensitized to what's going on. Because, hey, you know, if you get back from Vietnam and your best friend was shot in the head while you were talking to them, you're going to come home and some things about racism just aren't going to be quite as big a deal as they were before you left. Right. Right. Because this changes the whole, the whole spectrum of your experience has shifted and changed. It's altered. Right.
0: Well, but I would also say this, just Uh because I've I've had people, this is something I've I've found fascinating because it seems to me in recent years, there's been this narrative that has been promoted, Uh like black people are so (laughs) anti-white, you know, and that we have, you know, and like this, you know, I know they used to have the show with George Jefferson years, you know, when I was a kid and he would oh, yes. talk about honky and this, that, and the other, but black folks don't go around talking like that, that I knew. And not so, at all. Me, me neither. and nor did anybody, I mean, white folks could come in our neighborhoods and have no problems whatsoever. People would yeah. just let them do what they were going to do. Now I'm not saying that they could come and act out. You can't do like the guy in the Popeye's and expect not to get popped in the mouth for calling people, you know, the N-word in in the store. But, I mean, if you're just in the neighborhood, nobody was bothering you. And so I think there's this really interesting narrative that almost implies that, you know, black folks have this big problem with white people generally. And I don't think that's necessarily the case, you know, and I've I've never seen that. Me neither, me, neither, but see that's a social construction that only
1: serves white supremacy because yeah. you have to instill that fear in white people or they're not gonna they're not gonna come up with it themselves <laughs> you know it's a very media uh centered fabrication of reality i it has never been my reality, and it hasn't been to this day um, and Yeah, so I don't, not at all.
0: Well, and because of that, I think that maybe it's even hard to imagine. Obviously, George coming out of Vietnam would have definitely been desensitized to certain things just by the sheer violence and and the extreme conditions there. But even just, you know, as you're telling the story, I'm just going, wow. I mean, I couldn't see somebody's dad. (laughs) No matter what their thoughts on a particular matter. Of course. Yeah, say,
1: exactly yeah.
0: Yeah. Being anywhere near so angry as to threaten his own daughter's life. To me, that is such an extreme behavior. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean?
1: Yes. He had a lot of extreme behaviors. My sister actually wrote a book about him and her. So like mm-hmm. I said, this is not the standard norm. Okay. As far as I'm concerned. So that's, not my point. I'm really just kind of expressing what my mm-hmm. experience that shaped my consciousness. Gotcha. See, and so my experience was particularly complicated and very intense, and there was much more for me to sort out as a result. Mm. Result. And, um, but I do think that it has a great deal to do with who I am, because. Otherwise my attention would have been elsewhere or I may not have had to remain as focused on the significance of even that, that action, that affront, that outrage. Mm -hmm. So it happened. This is an interesting little moment for me about this. When I left home and when I had started the relationship and married, I really did not think that many people were going to be like my father. And I was wrong. And we see that today. Well, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think the last five years, in fact, the last 10 years was since Trayvon Martin, in terms of a public, um, affect. That's when I began to feel that old kind of terror, like I've known for the last 30 years that a lot more white men are like my father. They don't have to be as extreme. They don't have to lock someone in the room and do that. They don't have to do that. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: There's other things they're doing. Because basically that's what white supremacy is and that's what racism is. So they're at work. They're doing that. Okay? White racists, white men who are racist are doing that. So, and they have that control and they have that power to do that. We see it now in the government. We see it. We see the effect of that power. We see the effect of that white privilege everywhere we go. It's transparent now. It's not isolated in one person's home.
0: So let me ask you a question. Yes. Because I have... I, I have a couple of thoughts on this, and and I'm not sure how you would perceive it, but I perceive that there are folks who do not perceive themselves as racists or part of a racist society or structure. Yes. Who are going about living their lives and do not conscious. I want to say consciously. I don't like that word though, but do not consciously. Yeah they do not intend to do things but they end up doing them by virtue of the behavior they've learned Exactly yeah But yes. then there are the ones who are who have malicious intent and exactly. I put our president in the- Our current president in that that group. I mean, I think he's I think he's stupid like a fox in some ways. You know, people are always calling him dumb, but I'm like, yeah, I think he's he's dumb like a fox in some ways. Yes, yes, yes. Because he he plays that um he plays that so that he can get away with things. I think sometimes. Yes. Mm Mhm. Yes. And my question to you about that is, are you feeling that? more of those people who would not have perceived themselves to be racist before or part of that power structure before actually kind of owning that? Or are you feeling like it's just that people who were being silent before? Um, I
1: think think they're owning it, if I understand you correctly.
0: Um, Mm.
1: I think they're owning it more because they're more reactionary. Okay, and I think this is part of the problem, but it's also part of what I was showing in my book is the when you start to work through these issues regarding white privilege, you're gonna hit a bottom line of anger and rage about it, and that anger and rage can be projected onto the problem or you can be held accountable to it for yourself, like why are you angry at this? why is this why is this an affront to you what What has that? what is it about racism that has tapped into something for you that matters because we don't rebel against and we don't protest against what doesn't matter to us. We don't do that. Right. It's not in human nature to do that. We, for the most part, the way it all works is, well, that kind of resonates or it kind of doesn't. And if it does, we're going to, we're going to react. Um, so I think that a good portion of society is holding um, 45 as a, a staple of and a symbol of he can act out and he can do that and they can just align themselves with him without mm-hmm. having to be independent of him and held accountable independently of him. Do you mm-hmm. see what I mean? They tend mm-hmm. to attach themselves to an ideology or a theory or a reaction to a politic that they may like or dislike Rather than owning up that they're the politics, it's the theory within them that matters. Right. The theory, one of entitlement, is the theory one of superiority. Or, do you really believe you're superior to, you know, your associate at work, or your teacher in school? I mean, do you? That's serious. And if so, that's really heavy. And then it gets to, well, if so, then why? Why? Now, to a certain extent, it's because you've been trained to believe that you are. But we get over things every day like that. Adults mm-hmm. get over things that they were trained to believe in. That's what the maturation process involves. When you're 10, you don't know how to buy a house. But when you're 25 or 30 and you want them badly enough, you're going to learn how to do it. Right. Well, that's the thing about racism. If you care about it enough and it bothers you enough, and you kind of think that you're not, then there's a little bit of work for you to do about it regarding white privilege, because that is part of it. So, and then how do you disassemble white privilege if you're uncomfortable about racism? Well, first you have to find out about it. You have to identify it, right? And then mm-hmm. hopefully, hopefully see that. Well, yeah, you know, I guess this law wasn't the right law. <laughs> you know, I guess this one did put me at an advantage. In spite of the times, in spite of whatever way I've been suffering due to these, due to the recession of two thousand eight, and all that's been going on now, so um, you know there's just that element of reevaluation and reassessing yourself. Um, when people start to open up about it, and start to kind of get it, one of the things I question them is workshops: is if you woke up this morning without racism, how would your life have been different? And it takes a very long time for white people to, to really think about it. Because there's almost a real visceral reaction to that of shame or guilt. Yeah. Okay? Now, to me, that's an indicator that you have been aware all along. There has been some kind of an intuitive understanding of injustice because that moment is very telling that's a very important moment so and, but what happens oh go ahead
0: mm-hmm. no no i was just going to ask you are your when you do your workshops there are they racially mixed yes they are yes mm-hmm. and, and do you I, ask that question of everyone oh sure oh yeah oh absolutely yeah and, and what um, kinds of answers do you get from different kind different kind of people
1: you get like um Well, first total silence, complete silence, with such a reference, uh, um, a reverence, frankly, for the suffering that racism causes us, because it causes so much suffering. And then um, one of the women, a black woman had said, well, you know, I've never really thought about, you know, I can't even imagine it. I can't even sit here and imagine that, you know? And another woman had said, I've never been able to think about what white people really think about racism. I've never heard it. I've never heard it discussed in my circle. You know, I've never heard what it must be like to really be white. There's a thing with whiteness that interests me a lot, and that is that we are the oppressor. We are. We don't have one another. We don't have one another's back in a very real way regarding racism because we're the oppressor. We don't trust one another.
2: Hmm.
1: And instead of trust is competition.
0: Elaborate on what you mean by you don't trust one another.
1: White people don't trust one another. I've been in white circles around racism for 30 years. And there is a real reticence to come to terms with, white people's identity is wrapped up in racism and white privilege. How can it not be? We are raised under that umbrella of white supremacy. It is what we were born into We weren't born into a situation to rethink it or restructure it. There are very few models of people um, who speak about it or who are known for speaking about it. It is still a secret. It's almost like a big secret. And it's coming out now. And what's happening is people are starting to have to come out about this and go, Wow, do I have to really become self-conscious about being white? Isn't that
0: kind of weird? Yeah, I don't know. I remember remember thinking it would be kind of cool if my now ex-husband kind of felt a a tiny portion of what I felt (laughs) sometimes.
1: Precisely, precisely. And that's really a very serious distinguishing factor between us because it's really people of color and blacks, really blacks, who have had to rethink and rethink what what that means to them. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, the degree of, of suffering that goes on with identity issues. In one, in my second book, I refer to it as the involuntary construction of a of an identity issue. You know um, what people go through, um, trying to develop and trying to develop within this social construct of white racism, which isn't simply a social construct. It is economical. It, yeah. it has to do with mental health. It has to do with physical health. It has to do with survival. It has to do with housing. Do you know what I mean? It's not some kind of an ideological issue, you know, that's aesthetic. It's not an aesthetic. (laughs) It has to do with whether or not you walk down the street and be safe or get in your car and be safe. Um, So, you know, and I just feel that, uh, you know, one of my um, chapter titles is uh, the social construction of an involuntary identity crisis. Well, white people don't have to go through that. We don't have to go through that. When we get together, we don't get together and discuss what it's like being white. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We don't have to say, oh, I didn't get the job because I was white. <laughs> we don't have to do that. Okay, that's When you imagine that, what that would be like to not have to rethink how or why. Right? Yeah in relation to color, to your color, to your identity, to your ethnicity. It's like white people on a vacation compared to people of color as far as I'm concerned. Regardless of their suffering around a zillion other issues and there's a lot of suffering because we all suffer, we're human beings, we're all going to suffer. But we're not suffering for the same reasons and we're not having to process that suffering in the same way. Because the content of that suffering is quite different. And the consequence of that suffering is quite different. And that's deep. That's heavy. And in interracial unions, that is extremely heavy. Because also, um, you know, there's a lot of role playing in any kind of relationship that's of any consequence to anybody. We're going to play certain roles. We're going to fulfill certain expectations Mm -hmm. in interracial relationships, especially, um, you know, uh, well, let's look just in my own situation. um, My children are children of color. I'm a white woman. I was a white person within a family of color. Do you see what I mean? I was, I was not the dominant white. I was not the dominant mother in a family in that respect. Do you see what I'm saying?
2: I had white privilege.
1: Clarify what you mean by that. Well, I had white privilege, but I'm in a family of color, and I'm raising children of color
0: in mm-hmm. a white supremacist country. Right. So, how did that change your 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 role as a parent?
1: Oh, I think it made me more. Um, I think I acquiesced more to being less of an authority figure than I may have been otherwise.
2: Ah, oh, interesting.
1: Absolutely absolutely and it's so funny because when I'm around uh, a lot of white people and white families and white women with their children and I listen to them and I it's even interesting just hearing how they assert their authority over their children and and not in an abusive way at all and it's totally mm-hmm. appropriate given whatever in the child's enthusiasm for what they're doing and the the ongoing dialogue monologue <laughs> <It's> <laughs> I love it and um you know it was fascinating but so utterly different it's so utterly different than the way i would do it Interesting.
2: because
1: yeah because i would listen and listen and part of what i'm listening for is the impact of white supremacy on them and how much it's altering their self-esteem at different oh.
2: stages.
1: yeah different stages of development because i knew who they were at each stage i knew the joy i knew the effervescence i knew their wellness mm-hmm. But at each stage, as is the case as far as I'm concerned with all families of color. I mean, this is where that big, um, you know, the talk. I had to have the talk with my son when he was around 12 or 13, you know, about his safety. And he felt, oh, yeah. I'll be, and he's light complexion, you know, biracial. It's okay, I'll be safe. <laughs> and then, um, no, of course not. So, and how do we deal with that? How do you do approach with that? So that's very different. It's very different than raising white children in which i have to be saying to them, you may find yourself safer in certain situations than your friends of color. So therefore, this is kind of how we're going to deal with that as a family.
0: As opposed to the the conversation like I'm sure you have with your son, I've had with mine, I had uh, to actually tell my son, you cannot do what the little white boys in your class do. Absolutely. Because you will get in trouble and they may not. You can't always follow behind what they're doing because you know if they wanted to be little class clowns that was fine but if you are a class clown you're going to probably be disciplined precisely and
1: um and then the and and you can see how much that kind of influences their enthusiasm around their normal natural enthusiasm yeah which and then the 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 take on it is and then that beginning of having to separate oneself from their friends in terms of, well, my friends had that freedom and I don't. Now, it may not be seen in that language like I'm expressing it. Right. But this is part of what we see in our young boys. We see mm-hmm. them growing, developing, going, wow, you know, it must be kind of nice to be white, you
0: know? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, it's funny that you say that because I actually ended up um, initially, I initially with my son – he was at a predominantly black school at first, and then yes. uh, Atlanta has magnet schools, and we got him into the magnet school system. And all of a sudden, he started having problems in school—problems he didn't have
2: before. Oh yes, yes, yes. And
0: mm-hmm. I would go to school, and I, you know, for example, he did not. And I think this is maybe a male thing. I don't. I'm not an expert in in child development, but my girls right. tended to be pretty relatively organized like if you said have you got your homework done and the set and the other they would have it and they turn it in and there was no problem yeah my son didn't he wasn't as good with the paper bit at first yeah. so yeah. i spent a lot of time over the when i realized that was what was going on i spent a lot of time working with him and getting a binder or organized in a certain way and so forth and then i went and met with uh-huh. the teachers in fourth grade and said hey listen I know y'all like things done a certain way, but I think he needs more structure. And this is the structure I'm giving him to work with until he knows how to develop his own. And I'd like you to work with me. Fourth grade teachers, no problem. Everything went great from that point forward. But then come fifth grade, again, I did the same thing. This time, beginning of the year, I said, listen, this is what we're doing, blah, blah, blah. I have the system in place. I'd like you to work with me. And I got so much pushback from these teachers. And this was a team that had no black teachers on it. The fourth grade teacher, the fourth grade team did have a black teacher on it. Um, I got so much pushback and I'm like, so you would rather him not be as successful than to just let him, let him do this system that I've taught him. You know what I mean? Like what, what is your, oh yes, I know what you mean. Yes, I do. Absolutely. I don't understand what your deal is. You know, it was kind of my approach. And then they didn't like when, when the angry black woman came out. Cause at, at that oh. point it, it wasn't going to be nice
1: <laughs> oh, Not at all. And I mean, I was, and I was, um, assertive. Do you know what I mean? Like I would yeah. cross that line. Um, I'm white, you know what I mean? Of course. Yeah. So it, it'd be different, but they would get that tone, Yeah. that tone of, I'm raising black children. Don't you dare mess with my child. Don't you do it, whether you get it or not. The other advantage that I had is I'm a white person. So it's safer for them in a sense because it's a white person telling them off. Right. Okay. So I could, but I would use, I would have to use that leverage. It's my son. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that leverage within that context. I'm not going to allow a white teacher to mess with my son. I'm not going to allow it. Right. I'm not going to allow them to expect less from my son. That's not without me calling them out on it but they wouldn't necessarily know why I was doing that or why right. that angst, why that angst, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Which is a, a, of color angst, you right. know what I mean? <laughs> like, right. um, and this is where language and identity gets really, really interesting. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, because, um, and then I would start to take that control over the situation for as long as I could. But meanwhile, mm-hmm. as a mother, and this is something that I, I say to all mothers of of children of color, is meanwhile, we know that bad, lousy habit of being disorganized is a reaction to the racism. We know that. We know that is not the direction that child would have gone, right, had the same expectation been met of them as it had been of the white child sitting next to them.
0: I'm going to say, I'm going to say that I don't know the answer to that myself Mm -hmm. because, because I watched, I I watched the different personalities of my children Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and I have two girls and and my, my sweet baby boy, who's now a a young man, but I had three very different children personality wise. And. I watched as each of them developed their organizational style.
2: Yes.
0: One of them was a total type A, that's the one who's like currently in law school. She was a total type A personality, got her stuff together very young, very quickly. Yeah. No problem. The middle one, she knew what was going on, but I'd look at it and go, this looks like chaos, but if you know what's happening, I'm going to leave it alone. Sure. <laughs> you know sure. what I mean? She'd have papers sticking all out of the binder and everything, but she knew serious? yes. <laughs> she knew what she was doing. She got the papers turned in. With Michael, it was definitely, I think it was more a personality thing for, for him than anything else, but... There could have been some part of that that was reactionary because that school ended up being pretty problematic. And yeah. I can imagine I can imagine that had you gone over there and had a similar conversation with with the teachers, um, conversations would have gone differently. I actually had had left in in tears one day because the teacher yeah. basically said, Oh, well, he has no friends because he's not doing his work and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I was like, I just, what are you talking about? I was fascination of him. (laughs) Yeah. I was, I was like, I'm I'm pulling him out of the school. And it was another teacher who stopped me and said, listen, he's too smart. He belongs here. He needs to be here. Don't do that. Don't pull him out. And she's the only reason he stayed there. Yes. But I found out, but I found out later that teacher was completely lying to me.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely.
0: And, and, it, and I had to go to the principal. I said, I can't entertain this. This is too much. And I don't think that you, you know, you as a white woman would have been handled the same way by right, that teacher. Right. right and right. it's really difficult. It's a difficult situation. Um, And then I've got mixed race in two. I guess ways i've got my first two children were by my first husband who's white my second husband was from nicaragua uh-huh. Uh-huh. and so there there are other dynamics there you know yeah. with the hispanic well, element added in sure and yeah. just the way the way people are with regard to the kids and i think it, you have to be very fierce protecting your 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 children in general but black boys in particular, I felt always felt in some ways less concerned about these things for the girls, because I think the girls got cut a lot more slack, yes. maybe because they were female, maybe because they were more fair skin, but yes. right. particularly for the boys, what are your thoughts?
1: Well, I feel this way. I feel like this gets into another very serious gender problem um, area, because the the ways in which we have to reassert ourselves with these teachers who are racist, okay, Mhm. a very big deal. Because our son, who is growing up and trying to be independent of us in the normal and somewhat natural ways that are necessary, they're having to also observe us overseeing and protecting them in this particular way. Mm-hmm. That is a result of white hatred of blacks, period.
2: There's right. no other
1: way for me to frame it. Because even whites who claim to know about racism, well, why don't you know about it? <laughs> How can you possibly not know, you know, uh, honestly? So and now it's possible. And I've spoken to all different kinds of people in all kinds of situations. So everything, if we can take everything within context, that's one kind of a conversation. But in terms of a general generic across the board type of thing, our sons are watching us have to assert and assert ourselves again and again in their mm-hmm. defense,
2: mm-hmm.
1: their defense. That's completely contrary to how young boys are supposed to be and be needing to be and are wanting to be and hoping to be. They're not right. wanting their mothers to have to be in defense of their normal, natural instincts to do whatever they're doing. You know what I'm saying? Regarding right. their education. You know, like, right. I don't, I've don't. i never known a boy who wants a mother to have to show up at school to kind of outsmart the teacher to be cool <laughs> with them. <laughs> you know, That's a lot. That's a lot of role yeah. play. Yeah. You know what I mean? You are the mother of three, you have this, you have a business, you're doing this, you're probably going to school. You know, whatever you're doing, plus you're right. married to your wife, and you have other relationships. I mean, how many relationships are we supposed to handle in one day? Right. <laughs> how much more are we supposed to be able to take on? And then to take it on as if it's all cool, and to show up as if it's all cool, and as if we're yeah. not agitated, or as if they're not doing their job right, or as if they're not even doing their job, Period. And that's another area because that gets into all kinds of issues that have to do with um, educators and the system and yeah. all of. This. So, um, but basically, you know, I know that there were moments when you're trying to gauge, you know, his freedom. Let him be his autonomous self. Right. You know, who knows who he is? at Eleven years old. Let him be who he is. That's what we want. Mothers want our kids to be who they are. That's right. really what most really want. And we just want them to be in environments where they're able to be who they are and be who they and be safe in who they are. And part of being safe in an educational environment is that you're being educated, <laughs> not being criticized, not being ostracized, you know or ignored or ignored, precisely. Yeah. So um, and that's what and then when mothers have to go in to intervene and to kind of play these multiple roles as some kind of an advocate for our child. You know, for heaven's sake. And then do it in a nice way so that the teacher's not offended?
2: You no. Know,
1: I had to do that. And you know, it was very tricky. But when I walk away, and here's the big difference. When I walked away from those situations, I was very conscious of the fact that I'm white by then. And I was very conscious of the fact that this is easier for me than it would be for a woman of color. And I'm not putting out a big generic thing,
0: you know, where yeah. a lot
1: of women of color go, that's bullshit, I don't mean it that way. I mean, I was conscious as I matured through this entire process with my children in the school system. I became more even more and more conscious of my whiteness. I was like, wow, I was just able to do that and swing that and pull that because I'm white. Right. Because frankly, I often felt if I was a woman of color, there's no freaking way. I would have had the history that would allow me to swing this with this woman and get the results I wanted without an issue.
0: You know, it varies so much by teacher. I mean, yeah. I remember even, even at the predominantly black school, I had to go over there because I came from a corporate background. Yeah. I expected a certain level of professionalism. Oh, sure. Yeah. And when I didn't see it, cause uh-huh. I, I've, I've had children in school in foreign countries. You know, we lived in uh-huh. Guatemala for a while. We lived in Mexico for a while. Um, I've had children in school in Louisiana, and Georgia, and now, uh, in, and I'm trying to remember, do we do Virginia? No, not Virginia was just pre-K, but, Mm -hmm. and now in California, the level of unprofessionalism that I saw disturbed me so much. Um, even, and it was sometimes little things like, They would have the little aftercare program and they wanted their money in cash and i'm like what kind of what kind of system is this what yeah what do you mean i have to pay aftercare in cash i've never heard of such a thing right i'm not giving you cash yeah what what and then you'd see the teacher lean back counting like she's about like she's thinking about how she's gonna go buy her some milano Blancs or something and i'm like what is going on that's not your money (laughs) exactly Exactly, it's you know? easy. Wow, but that's they wild. Yeah, the black school wouldn't take wouldn't take um, checks. But then I went over to the predominantly white school where Michael started, you know, having issues occasionally with those teachers, and they were willing. They take credit cards, debit cards, uh, you know, checks. What? Oh no, you pay how you want. I'm like, what kind of what? This is the same school district. My so <clears throat> amazing, amazing.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> you know, like
0: weirdness. And so it's when so- you and so I even had issues with those because I was like, well, why am I getting things back from your teachers that sound like your teachers don't understand the English language? I don't understand. Right. That this is not correct. And right. why is she telling my my child this? Right, and you do understand that my children are very smart, so if you tell one of them something, they're gonna show it to the others, and they're gonna say "That your teacher's stupid <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. you know yeah. so you can have those issues with i think with in for different reasons with different teachers and different schools. I think it, yeah. it the yeah. system is I, so spotty. you know what I, I mean, absolutely, yeah. And I'm
1: sure this would be a fantastic program in and of itself, with people sharing their stories about their children in the school systems and what they've had to do, because you end up being, you know, an interpreter. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So much in the process of trying to deal with one issue that 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 seems bizarre, you know, (laughs) or peculiar. Um, So. I think that my with my work again and with my book, what I try to do is present the fact that the when we think there's something wrong, there is,
2: mm, there is yeah.
1: and we've been trained to to not recognize what's been wrong that's changing now. I mean the politics of the times is so outrageous that the transparency of of stuff that people have been in denial about, they can't be in denial of it anymore. It's all out there. So in a way, this is a big clearing away of what white supremacist norms are and assumptions and how dangerous they are and how vile it is.
0: Do you think that people are seeing things in a way that is almost similar to the way that so many folks started waking, and I call it waking up, consider it waking up, started yeah. waking up in the in the wake of the civil rights movement. Like uh, Emmett Till's mother, for example, saying, I want an open casket so that they can see yeah. what they did to my son and how that yeah. was a great awakening for people and how watching people getting beaten in the streets just for marching and singing was an yes. awakening for people. Do you feel like you're seeing something similar now with the Tiki Torch people and people running over folks with cars for, for being out there uh, protesting against those type folks?
1: Yes, it's, I, it's, it's a great question. I think I have two answers
0: to that question.
1: So the first one is with the civil rights movement, when that came into being and was becoming more transparent because of technology, Mm-hmm. Right away, it was clamped down and shut down, upon because it was so powerful.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's when um, I don't want to get too into political political parties and all that jazz. But that's when the far right began to really clamp down on it all and go, "Oh no, no, no! We're not going here. We're going to make sure that um, we're going to make sure that." Well, one of the things they did was they made sure that ketchup was considered a vegetable for public schools. Ketchup, right, right, okay. So. And that's what they began to clamp down and shut down and shut down and shut down on the potential of the civil rights movement to be really life-changing for the country as a nation.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And meaning non-reversible, progressive change toward humanitarianism and civil rights and human rights and social justice. That was the end of that. When now people are in shock. So now it has a, it's almost like everyone has post-traumatic stress disorder from this. Mm -hmm. My, the biggest aspect of it all for me is technology-wise, there's so much knowledge now that people can't be in denial about racism. But if you really haven't figured out what racism actually was to begin with, it can almost go right over your head because it's going to be tapping into all other kinds of levels of trauma for you. You know, who's gonna really care if they're, if they're in denial about white supremacy or racism to begin with, how much are they gonna care about someone being murdered because of it? Who's protesting it? Do you see what I mean? Like to me, it's a much more personal experience, racism. It's not collective, it's not, It it is both, it's both. It is political, yeah. it is, but it's very personal. My point and my contribution to this whole platform is you must take it personally, you must own it personally, you must. And you must do so with um, a suspension of judgment and with humility. That's our obligation as citizens is to review it and reassess it and own it. Because it's our problem independent of one another. It's our problem. It's not only a collective problem. It's not, and that's the problem. So for me now, when I see everything going on now and how people are responding to it, it has ignited an enormous amount of consciousness. It has absolutely fired people up in a place that matters tremendously. But at what cost if they don't get it personally, if they're not really getting it? Because racism is really personal. It's really a personal thing. So you can go out there and fight there and do what you're doing, but if you've not really changed and you don't have psychic integration and you don't really believe the person next to you is like you and you're not better than them, then you're still in trouble. We're still in deep trouble.
2: Mm. No
1: matter how many murders there are, we're still in deep trouble until we get that, as far as I'm concerned. Right. Right. As far as I'm
0: concerned, we're in deep trouble. Let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Let me ask you this. So people that you work with, are these folks that are coming to you saying, I recognize that there is an issue and that I have a place, I have a part in this and I need to deal with this? Are these people that maybe, you, you know, they're being sent to you for some reason, whether it's a corporate environment or what have you?
1: Well, in the past, what's happened is people have come representing other people who they believe
0: have a problem. <laughs> Almost like in, an interventionist type thing. Like like, yes, yeah, truly, yes. And
1: um, <laughs> you know, a a friend of mine said a few years ago, nobody wants to talk about race, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Which
1: is one of my one of my lectures is the unspoken deep pain of racism, and the other one is um the spirit of change, working the racial equality muscle. Because we're all resistant right. to change. Of course and of course if the more trauma we're exposed to, the more insensitive we get to trauma, frankly. Mm-hmm. Unless mm-hmm. it's worked out step by step. And who's gonna do that when they're even more and more traumatized right. by a variety of other things coming in to their lives and their families' lives. I mean it's very it's a difficult thing. One of the things I've always said is Racism, the whole thing of white supremacy, needs to be really dealt with much, much younger. Because by the time 50, people are 50 or 60, they wake up and start to get it, because they've already they've already begun the road of real suffering, of the ending of things, the mm-hmm. ending of the, the ending of their friends' lives, illnesses mm-hmm. they didn't expect. This is, you know, it's an interesting time in our lives, and but it's one in which many times white people just start to come to terms with loss, deep, deep loss. And for some reason or other, when they are that age group, they start to identify more strongly with people of color and what they have lost, because people of color have lost their civil rights. They've been losing their civil rights. It's been taken right away from, I'm going to say us, it's been taken right away from us as a nation, right before our eyes again and again and again, and the powerlessness, The uselessness of it, the depression of it is so intense. And that's what a lot of 50, 60, 70 and 80 year old people, white people who've never had to really look at racism, particularly before, start to come to terms with, wow, they're identifying with loss. This has always worried me, too, because for me, in my integrated background, the wealth of George and his family, the internal wealth of them. Mm hmm. Me to this day inspires me every day, every Mm -hmm. single day. And yet, for white people who come to terms with racism later in life, what they're mostly identifying with, which has always worried me, it still worries me, is that now they're suffering like people of color have. Right. (laughs) You see what I mean? So they're missing the whole thing. It's almost like missing the whole thing. But see, that's a result of believing that you're better. Because you're not really getting the bottom line. You're not better and you never were better. Right? Yeah, you're not. And this is the reality in this country that I'm hoping is the next step in the wake up process that you refer to. And waking up is really, really a fine term. It's exactly what it is. It is waking up and we've been trained to be asleep. And a lot of money has been invested in our being asleep. For as long as possible, for entire lifetimes, most of us, and for the last hundred years, a couple of hundred years. And now we're waking up. And technology has helped enormously in that process. The exposure to the truth, you know, on YouTube, on Facebook, the connections, the connectedness has been just astronomical in our collective healing process.
0: But in it has collective- been like ripping a band aid off. That's...
1: Precisely. <laughs> Precisely.
0: Precisely. It has Precisely. been tricky. I, um, what are your thoughts yes. in terms of... It has been.
1: I, I always say it's like putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And yeah. we need to get into this wound. We need it. We need to get in there.
0: I, I always feel so optimistic though, because I watch my children, right?
1: Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And,
0: I, you know, I went to predominantly white schools. And yes. in elementary school, everybody played together at school, but we kind of went off our own directions at yes. Home, yes. once we got home. Even though we were all basically, mo- many of us were from the same neighborhood. Um, oh, sure. You cross over one avenue, though, and that was predominantly white. You cross back over to the other side, and it's, it's predominantly black, right? So.
2: And
0: that's the north. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So, I I, I grew up with that. And in, in elementary school, you were friends, you might even ride bikes with the white kids sometimes or hang out a little bit with them occasionally, yeah. one or two of them, but you pretty much ended up with your own friends and by high school, there was like no contact with the white kids except at school. That's it. There was exactly. no going to each other's exactly. parties or visiting each other's houses or anything or even just riding bikes or seeing each other at the park anymore. Exactly but i watch my kids yes and i also have to keep in mind that what i had was more than what my parents had as far as yeah uh you know being with different kind of people was concerned that just didn't happen so i i look at the incremental progress but with my kids i see them with their friends i watch my two older girls go off to college. Now the oldest one's in law school. She still hangs out with her, her racially diverse group of friends.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: you know, down South, tends, things tend to be more black and white than anything else, but it's it's a mixed group of kids. I see the same thing with my middle child, and I think I'm seeing the same thing with my baby boy, although he hasn't gone off to college yet. So yeah. how do you feel? I mean, how do you feel about where we're headed. And I know things look like they suck right now. (laughs) (laughs) But how do you feel about where they're headed? I'm curious. I think what's happening
1: is that the interior life of people, and again, younger generations, are not going to be accepting the same patterns of hatred and prejudice. There's much more exposure to integration cross-culturally there's much more influence you know over the culture that is cross cultural. Do you see what I mean? mm-hmm, so I feel that it's inevitable that these things are going to actually dissolve all right so that there's going to be unity. That's what I think. Laws have to be changed, however, and if anything, people and are becoming more conscious of the value of voting, the necessity to vote and the necessity to participate and the necessity to be for what you're for. It's more important to be for what you're for and act on it than to be against something,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: right? I think that's really the main thing is, okay, this is how you, so I feel, I feel optimistic. I just would hope that there's less and less suffering in store before we can get to that place of what I consider normal. Because for me, what is normal is psychic integration. What is normal is not to believe I'm better. However, there is this little tricky aspect to this, and that is that with white privilege, white people have been receiving and receiving and receiving and receiving the benefit of the doubt, tremendous safety, a lack of criticism, You know, a lack of analysis, the assumption of normalcy and some of those things have to go and white people have to give it up.
0: Yeah, I think that's a challenge because you're in a we're in a society where things are structured that if I say someone has done something to me because I am black or not done something for me or not give me an opportunity because I am black. The assumption is that I am projecting something that does not exist. Exactly. As that I am perceiving something that does
1: exactly and that's a really tricky part that like I said before that's why the general um, climate of things and there's no real band-aid for this because it really is deeply personal so until people understand what a personal relationship they have to white supremacy whether they wanted it or not they've got it
2: mm-hmm. and that
1: has to be figured out and disassembled because you're not going to be able to to be equal to anything if you think you're better all the time. If your comparative value system is to compare it to you because you're better, it's over. There's no reason for a person of color to even talk to you. Right? Yeah. There's no reason for it.
2: Now, well then then-,
0: then, then the question is well what if if what if they don't care? What if they don't care? They don't care that, I mean, what I've said to, um, you know, cause I, I went through, um uh, undoing racism workshop many, many years ago. And one of the things that I thought they did exceptionally well was yeah. defining racism, discrimination, and, and, and sh- structural racism, right? Yeah. yeah. And discrimination and, yeah everybody discriminates we all have our preferences we yep. all have our biases etc sure, but sure. racism or structural racism is basically the way the system is set up to operate right that's right and yeah. if you've got a system that's set up to operate in your favor what incentive do you have to change it right i mean you're right it's like well that's every a key system problem in your that's- body Wants to just perpetuate itself and wants to protect itself. That's the nature of systems. So what incentive do you feel if you were to give right now, like one big incentive to someone who Hmm. feels like, well, this benefits me. And I don't really care one way or another. I don't have to have black friends. I don't have to talk to people. I don't, you know, yeah, I go to work and maybe have to talk to the occasional black or Hispanic or Asian or whoever person, but I don't really care. What, if if you had to give them one incentive to to change themselves and thereby help change the system, what would it be? Freedom. Freedom.
1: Don't you want freedom?
0: Freedom from what?
1: Prejudices. Your prejudices and your hatred and your fear. Because you can't have those particular prejudices without being really scared that it's going to be taken from you. You know, Um, I mean, that's one of the things I would say. Um, the other thing is I've spoken to white people who've said, but I have the edge. Why should I bother? Racism is an issue for people of color. It's not my issue.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Which is essentially what you're saying. Right. And it's true. But you either want to match your ideals or you don't. Very rarely do you speak a white person white, white, about racism who doesn't have some idyllic sense of themselves, either as a mm. philanthropist. Or something or humanitarian, this is really ingrained in white consciousness is that we are the beneficiaries of something very special you know for the collective mm-hmm. somehow or other, and we're trained to think that way and we're trained to think that way in schools and well plus we do have the we do have the concrete economic advantage. We have that. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. We have that access, we have an access with ease that others don't have. So, you know, you're saying to people, why would you want to give up your freedom? Why? But I'm saying for more freedom.
0: Or to live up to their own sense of who they are. This has been my you, thing. Who you, who
2: you, One,
1: believe you, are? you believe you You believe, I can't, I, very rarely do I meet a white person who doesn't think they're a great person or a nice person. <laughs> I mean, it. it's, it's a thought. Go anywhere. Oh, absolutely. And we go, what do you think about yourself? Well, I think I'm a good person. I've, yeah, I've done pretty, this. Yeah. I'm pretty, really? And why Why do you think you're good? for? Well, you know, I like I like this and I care about the world and I care about this and I care about that. And I'm like, good. And what about racism? Oh, well, racism, you know, it's just such a big deal. There's nothing I can do about it. You know what I mean? That's usually the response. Yeah. So I'm like, why don't you live up to your, well, why? Why is there nothing for you to do about that? I mean, if you wanted to go to school, did you find ways to get into school? Did you want to have a family? Did you find a way to have a family? I mean, white people are geniuses getting what they want, figuring out what they want for themselves, getting it. Okay? Now, why? Because of white privilege. Right. Right? Because we believe that we are, because we believe they've had that right. Do you understand? Like, we, we were trained to believe we can do that. You know, it's funny. I've even met black people who look at me and they go, why don't you have more? Shouldn't you have more because you're white? <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. And, there, and I have to be ashamed of, how I go, you're right, I am white. I didn't, I didn't manipulate my white privilege. I didn't do it because I'm not a racist. Wow. So I couldn't do that. Yeah. I've known white men, who I talked about in my book, in fact, who have chosen not to have children because they refuse to um, exhibit their white privilege through having any kind of authority over a child. That's there interesting. There are white people who are trying desperately to find their way to dissolve the impact of white privilege in their lifetime in their choices
0: and that's really change. interesting. How would not having a child uh, and this is me being completely ignorant of this this <laughs> concept yeah um, what how would that help? How would not having but a they're, child not gonna help? Cont- they're not going to contribute to the to the confusion
1: of the power over a developing human being in the country. They're not going to do that. They're not going to be exuding any of their authority in that particular way, because they have enough of that to do with white privilege as their life is childless. They get enough of that. They get an opportunity enough for that on the job. They get an opportunity enough of that as a teacher. The assumptions of whiteness and normalcy and authority are tremendous. The expectation is, whites will have it together you know it's interesting when 9 11 happened one of my friends of color had said to me what really blew my mind and scared me to death is if that white president bush couldn't do anything for his own people he sure as hell isn't going to do a thing for us
0: oh well yeah we we saw that again right
1: But that's deep. That was deep. Because what she really was saying was, my expectation is, he will be taking care of us. And me as a white person, I'm going, how could you possibly think that? Especially with him. But how could you possibly think that anyway? Yeah. Right? And this is where we've been. And this is where we are. And this is why we see what's going on in the world right now today. But am I an optimist? Absolutely
0: well, you wouldn't be doing this work if you weren't an optimist.
1: Of course, I wouldn't bother. I'd be doing right. some, I'd be out
0: making money somewhere. <laughs> or better yet, you just run. You know what I mean? <laughs> I've been looking at an escape route, just so you know. I've been <laughs> oh, Then
1: I'd invite my black friends over for a lovely, elegant dinner, you know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Going, here's my privilege for you. Here, let's sit down and enjoy it. You know, have fun. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? But that's not the way that I've chosen to live, which goes back to your original question in the beginning of the program. Now, who am I? That's who I am.
0: I'm I a think person. that's fabulous. Yeah. I think that's fabulous. Well, Kaylin, tell okay. me, tell the audience, how can they connect with you? What do you have going on, and how can they connect with you?
1: Well, my first book has just come out of second printing, which I'm really happy about. They can contact me uh, through calling me, actually through, I'll put the phone number on. It's 413-404-5683. That's one number we can get re- reach me. And 413-341-3503. I'm very accessible, and I'm accessible for conversation because I'm a writer, so your points of view about these issues are important to me. And I also have a website, which is ltar.biz. ltar.biz. And is that you know, where they can purchase, purchase your books? You can purchase them through my website, or you can call me directly for them, or through okay. my publisher, which is Crandall, Dostie, and Douglas Book, Douglas Books, CDD Books Incorporated. You can call nine zero one nine. I'm sorry, nine zero eight two four one five four three nine or fax 908-245-4872 for discount on bulk orders. And um, I also have a study guide to go with the book. So if you end up getting the book and you do want the study guide, just let me know or order it through my website. And I have another book that will be coming out sometime this year. Some publishers are looking at it now uh, called Protocol, Welcome to Paradise, Watch Your Step. And it's interviews with black men who live in predominantly white towns, often referred to as sundown towns, because it's not safe to be out, out and be black after six o'clock. And they're scattered, they're all over the country, still sundown towns. And it's really come back to life in the last 10 years, as we've seen, where you rarely even see black men two or three in a predominantly white town hanging out together, yeah, even at seven o'clock in the evening on the main street. So. We're in a cycle of incredible fear for good reason and learning best how to take care of oneself, how to take care of one another and keep the faith and do the work and do the work. And my message tonight before closing would be to white people, please do the work. And if you have any serious issues with all of this that you do care to discuss, I'm very accessible. And you can always contact me through my website. And I'm also on Facebook, Kay Olin on Facebook. And I'm very, very receptive toward um, responding to your interest in this subject. So that's
0: it. Kay Olin, thank you so much for being on Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Barard. And thank you so much, Michelle. It was great talking to you. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, that's our show this week, guys. You can reach out to me online at urbanbookeditor.com or michellebrot.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram as Urban Book Editor. Send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send in some topics you'd like us to cover on the show. Make sure you tune into the show on April 24th, when my guest will be education consultant Joy Simuel. You can find us twice a month on Fridays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern at the the somewhereinthemiddlepodcast.com. Let's continue the conversation. You guys be good, stay mindful, and remain prayerful. Peace and blessings, y'all.